Hey, we are actually in Mark 6.53. Mark 6.53, which puts us only a handful of messages. A handful of messages away from halfway through. Huh? Yeah. Would you turn to somebody, give somebody an almost halfway through high five. Give it to them. Uh, give them an elbow, maybe, if you're sick. I've been throwing bows at people this morning. People are like, what are you doing? I just don't want to give you germs. So give someone a high five or an elbow. Congratulate them. I feel like we need that this morning. We need to be congratulated. We are almost halfway through an entire, an entire gospel. Uh, I, know, I know a church, a, a good fr friend of mine, they're going all the way through Luke. And so they're going to be there for three years. We're just here for a year and change. And so uh, you got the short version of the gospels. Uh, so welcome to Mark 6.53. Would you turn there with me if you're not there already? Turn there with me. We'd like for you to participate. We'd like for you to join along. This is Mark 6.53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. The storm that Jesus calmed last week puts them still a little bit off course, and they get to a land called Gennesaret. Gennesaret is a very fertile and pretty land, uh, Josephus, this ancient Jewish scholar, puts a, a lot of fruit trees there, a lot of exotic trees there, because it's on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's a congested region because people want to live where it's fertile and pretty. I would not call Jersey City fertile or pretty. Um, I have not seen a conifer in about seven months. Uh, but we have food and culture and diversity, so take that land of Gennesaret, all right? When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and they moored to shore. Raise your hand if you know what moored means. That's good, thank you. Thank you for being honest today, okay? I had no clue. I'm all up in the dictionary. Uh, what, they, what that means is they, 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 they brought the ship to moorings, which you're not supposed to put the, you know what I mean? I'm not supposed to put the definition, the name, anyways. They, put the, they bring the ship to moorings, which means basically they anchor, they, they put it at shore. Next verse. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. This is the second time in three weeks. As soon as Jesus' feet hit land, people are mobbing. They're frantically running to where Jesus is. Uh, they're going to their cousin's house. They're knocking on the door like the popo. They're like, hey, Jesus is here. We got to get to him. Their cousin grabs their tunic or whatever they're wearing. They throw it on their shoulders and they run from city to city, town to town, across a whole region just to find Jesus, just to be around Jesus. Verse 56, and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they may touch even the fringe of his garment. That's important for later. And as many as touched it were made well. Is there anything like it in history? Is there anything like this moment in history? If you're here today and you're a skeptic, you haven't yet given your life to Jesus Christ, that's amazing. We're so glad that you're here. I pray and I pray and I pray that we are not a church that just has a bunch of Christians gathering, but we are people that bring our friends uh, bring the skeptics, uh, bring our neighbors, and we love our neighbors, and we love our girlfriends and boyfriends and husbands and wives who are skeptical of Jesus. I praise God that, that, that you are here today. Uh, and, and if you're a skeptic, I, I want you to think about this. Think about this moment. Reckon with this. Is there any other moment in history where the masses are being healed? We know of mass killings, 
but where Jesus is, there's mass healing. We know of mass shootings, but where Jesus is, the masses are being fed. Just reckon with this historical event here. But for weeks, we've talked about the healing of Jesus, the physical, the the spiritual, the emotional healing of Jesus. As a preacher, I sometimes have to dig in my bag of tricks a little bit more and go, okay, what else can we talk about? Because we've been talking about this, okay? And so since we've been talking about this, I want to dig into another bag really quick. And this bag is that uh, Jesus' witness, his God witness here isn't just powerful, although it is. Jesus is here witnessing as God. He's saying, this is how powerful God is. This is how loving God is. This is how compassionate God is. I want you to notice the witness of Jesus, but I also want you to notice the witness of people. That these people, whoever they are, feel such an urgency, have such an unction in their bones, that they don't just get to Jesus themselves, but they bring somebody else with them. Did you notice that? The witness of people. It's almost like every single person here feels like they're a missionary to every other person around them. Everybody in the region feels a sense of responsibility to bring everybody else in the region. And they're coming as teams, and they're coming as groups, and they're coming as families, and they're bringing people on beds together, and and, and they're all missionaries. And you have to understand the mission is so simple here. Mission is so simple. Get to Jesus bring somebody with you. It's so simple. I I loved what this scripture did to me this week because I'm sitting in my little, my my office is in my my daughter's bedroom uh, because that's city life, right? Uh, She only sleeps there, so it's not like I'm dominating. I just, that's where my, my desk is. I'm sitting there at my desk and I'm thinking, man, this is what we've longed for as City Life Church. That we wouldn't see the church Uh, as a gathering, just a gathering of people where the power lies within leadership. But we would see ourselves as a healthy, moving, breathing movement where everybody feels the unction to get to Jesus and bring somebody with them. Where the power lies in everybody sitting in these chairs today. Where the power is decentralized off of me or Ryan, or Pedro, or anybody else that sings up here, or Carla as the missions mobilizer, where the power is stripped off of just one person, and biblically, the power is given to every single person that knows Jesus, and every single person feels like, I need to get to Jesus and bring somebody else with me. This is what we long for as a church. So that's the title of today's message, Get to Jesus, Bring Somebody Else With You. Would you pray with me? God, we pray that we all feel a sense of responsibility this morning to be missionaries. Maybe not necessarily missionaries to Spain like Carla talked about, but local missionaries to anyone and everybody around us. Would you teach us how to be local missionaries? I know this is not a popular topic. It's not a topic that people run to church for. It's a topic that very easily scares people. It scares me. But I pray that we would all feel this in our bones today, that we would be local missionaries to anyone and everybody around us. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. I have been on one cruise. Raise your hand if you've been on a cruise. Yes. So good. In our 10 years of marriage, uh, we've been on one significant, kidless, more than one night vacation. And it was to this cruise. And it was to Bermuda, and it was six nights and seven days of glory. The average American gains a pound a day on a cruise. 
That is a true statistic. The food is so good, and so we just joined in the symphony of everybody else, and we put on six to seven pounds that trip, and every pound was so good. We went on the cruise in shape. We left the cruise a shape, and it was worth it. We, did, we weren't complaining. We weren't upset about it. We were like, yes. Every pound, it was expensive. We couldn't afford it. But every pound and every dollar was worth it to go on these six nights and seven days of glory. Now, life has gotten to us. Uh, we had another kid and then another kid. I, I don't know why we didn't stop at some point. Uh, we, we should probably do something about that. So, so now life has not really allowed us to go on another cruise. But they have my number somehow. Uh, they have my email. They know where I live, where I breathe. And they have peddled my information to everybody that they know. They have peddled my information like calling cards in the 90s. And everybody has, I remember calling cards. Yes, it was a short-lived deal. But actually the other day I saw them on a bodega. I saw calling cards. I'm like, bro, you got to change the sign. You got to change the sign, please. We know you're outdated. Anyways, my, my information has been peddled all over the nation. And now these deals are coming in from everywhere. The best deal is something called two sale free. This is the one that almost gets me every time. I'm like, babe, can we go? She's like, how are we going to go? I'm like, I don't know. Uh, but here it is, two sale free. And here's the deal. If you can get two other people to go with you, then the four of you go for the price of two. It's an amazing deal, right? I'm not a salesman, but like Jay-Z, if I had this deal, I could sell water to a whale. I mean, this is an amazing deal, okay? But here's the deal. You get to go if you bring somebody else. You do not get to go if you don't bring somebody else. In other words, you don't actually obtain the, the cruise at all unless you're bringing somebody with you. If you don't have the unction to bring somebody with you, then guess what? Deal's off. You're not going on the cruise. So let me tell you this as plainly and as boldly as I can. You do not obtain Jesus unless you're bringing somebody else with you. Unless there's some sort of unction inside of you you do not obtain Jesus unless you're bringing somebody else with you. And that may sound overly, overly bold or overly dramatic or, um, Justin, you're, you're just trying to make this kind of, uh, this, this alliteration, you're just, trying to, you're just trying to make this dramatic. And, and let me just tell you Jesus' words so that it doesn't feel like I'm trying to press this upon you in some weird way. Luke 9, 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He's talking about judgment day. Do you know why Jesus is bold here, this bold here? He's saying, if you're ashamed of me in front of other people, then you do not actually love me, and you do not actually obtain me, and therefore you're not really going to spend eternity with me. Because love and shame, they can't cohabitate. So if you're ashamed of me, you don't obtain me. And if you don't obtain, obtain me, it's clear that you're not inviting the people around you into a relationship with me. In other words, if you aren't willing to bring somebody else along, you don't really get Jesus. You're not really grateful for Jesus. You don't really understand Jesus. You don't really have a foundation of Jesus. If there is no fruit, the Bible talks about fruit hanging off your tree all the time. If, if, if there's no fruit in your life and you're not bringing others to Jesus somehow, someway, I'm not saying you've got to be John the Baptist and people got to be wandering into the Hudson River and you're dunking them every five seconds. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying there should be some fruit in your life where you're bringing somebody else to Jesus at some point. 
And if there is no root of Jesus, there will be no fruit. No root, no fruit. It's that simple. Right? Because if you love something, you are invitational. Good night. My favorite drink right now, my favorite drink right now, is a pumpkin cream cold brew from Starbucks. Come on with it. Are you serious? This thing is ridiculous. It is so good. It is so expensive. And we, I don't know why I keep buying them. But, like, I don't know if y'all know Dave Ramsey, but he's like this Christian financial guru. He is, a, like, Starbucks is the devil. I don't even care. I am getting this thing three times a week. It's taken up all of my food budget. But I love me a pumpkin cream cold brew. Guess what I've done? I've invited everybody, their grandmother and their dog, into the pumpkin cream cold brew experience. If you're around me, hey, what's up, Justin? You ever had pumpkin cream cold brew? I just jump right to it. Because when you love something, you're invitational. It's that simple. When you love something, you're invitational. How much more the love of Jesus Christ, if you love him, if you understand that he died for you, he resurrected for you, he's in relationship with you, he cares about you, that the God of the universe somehow reaches down and loves little old you, if you love Jesus and are appreciative and are grateful and have a foundation of Jesus, how much more will you be invitational of him than a pumpkin seasonal drink? Right? If there's no fruit, it's, it's because there's no root. And this is what we always say all the time here. Like, you're not a disciple if you're not making disciples. Disciple meaning devoted follower of Jesus. You're not a disciple, devoted follower of Jesus, if you're not making others. And again, that sounds bold and it sounds crazy and it sounds mean at times, but that means that you're living in shame when it comes to Jesus. And again, shame and love, they can't live in the same household. They can't be roommates. These people ancient Gennesaret, are not ashamed of Jesus. As a matter of fact, they're super invitational. Let's go back to the scriptures, verse 54. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Can you picture it? It's not a, it's not a posturpedic mattress here, but I want you to think about bringing one person on a bed, on a mat. We'll find out later it takes at least four people, right? So these people are getting in teams, they're picking dude up, and they're running miles to get to Jesus, just to touch a man. You have to vibe with it. It's very easy to go, oh, humdi hum, Jesus is healing the sick again. No, no, no. It's a historical event. Think about these people going from town to town, city to city, picking up their friends on mats, Hop, hop, hop. You know, they're like left foot, right foot. They're like, let's get, let's get these people to Jesus. You ever see these videos of a whale? And there's like a hundred people around, and there's like a machine, and we're trying to get the whale into the water. And you're like, you're not crying. Or, I'm not crying, you're crying. You're just like, you're tearing up over a whale getting back in the water because it feels like collective humanity cares about this whale. And it's amazing. Or you see a car, and the car is on top of somebody, and strangers jump in, and they lift the car off. There's 20 of them, and, and you're crying over this video. I want you to feel the vibe here. These people in teams are on collective mission. And Jesus is going to consider this collective faith, and he's going to give them a collective award. And the award is, everybody gets healing. Everybody. 
Do you remember the story in Mark 2? Um, it's four chapters ago. You're like, Justin, that's only four chapters ago. It's probably six months ago, so maybe you don't remember it, okay? Uh, Jesus is already lighting the world on fire. He's in a packed house in Capernaum. Uh, he can't even breathe. Everybody's around him. Nobody else can get into the house. I want to bring back up Mark 2 really quick. Four men came to Jesus carrying a man. That's how I knew how much it takes. Who could not move his body. These men could not get near Jesus because of so many people. They made a hole in the roof. A hole in the roof of the house where Jesus stood. Then they let down the bed of the sick man on it. When Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Their faith. Their faith. He said to the sick man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that may confuse you. Let me just break down the end of the story. He forgives his sins and he heals his body. Okay? But did you see it? It wasn't his faith. It was their faith. Y'all catch this? I think when we think about faith, we think about our faith in a fishbowl. We think our faith is just us in a little fishbowl and God determines what he's going to do based on my faith. But your faith is a part of an ecosystem, an entire ecosystem, where your faith affects other people, where your faith gets in the mix of somebody else's faith, where your faith is a testimony, where your prayer in faith can actually help heal somebody. This is what our faith, we think our faith is so isolated, we typically, isolated, thank you, I think, think myself. Uh, we think our faith is so isolated that it's just us. It's just little old me in the living room. And if I have faith, it might bring me to Jesus once in a while. But our faith actually affects everybody around us. If, if I have just faith to get myself to Jesus once in a while, get myself to church once in a while if I'm not traveling, I have last beer sip faith. But if my faith is part of the ecosystem of, of healing others and loving others and praying for others and getting others to Jesus, man, my faith is overflowing. Let me ask you, do you have last beer sip faith or is your cup overflowing and affecting others? These people are all in together. These people are using their collective faith to get collective award and everybody is healed. I have to ask us, what happened to us? What happened to me? Right? Because these people see this responsibility to love everybody around them, get to Jesus, and bring somebody else. What happened to me where I feel like all I gotta do is get myself to Jesus? Maybe you're like me. Look, maybe, maybe for you, uh, again, you're brand new to Jesus, fantastic that you're here. Maybe you haven't even given your life to Jesus, again, fantastic that you're here. But maybe you're like me, you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, and you can remember that moment when you gave your life to Jesus. Can you close your eyes, close your eyes with me? Some of you guys can remember that moment when you gave your life to Jesus. You can picture the time and the place or, or that time where you recommitted your life. Go ahead, open your eyes with me. Maybe it was in church or maybe it was at a conference or maybe it was a friend. And a, that, that, that feeling was so tangible. You can taste it. You can close your eyes. You can remember exactly where you were at. You can remember exactly the moment. And in that moment, you're like, Jesus, I'll go to Africa. I'll go to Spain. I'll go to Italy, Jesus. I'll go to Australia. I'll even go to Canada, Jesus. You were all in. You're like, Jesus, I'll even go to Canada. You remember that moment? And now Jesus is like, will you go across the hall? And you're like, nah, I don't know. It's kind of crazy. Jesus, I'll go to Australia. 
Now Jesus is like, will you go to the cubicle next over? Ah, it's a lot. Could you bring some brownies? I don't think so. Like, what happened to us? You ever think this way? What happened to me? I personally feel this. Um, I felt it this week, and I started to think through what I want to call missionary stoppers. Okay? The things that are stopping every man, woman, and child in this room from being a missionary to their neighbor, to their friends, to their coworkers. Now, we're going to go to the ends of the earth just like Carla and Pedro said, and we're going to send out missions, team, missions teams, but that's going to happen a couple times a year, okay, at the most. We're going in the spring somewhere. Like, this is going to happen a couple times a year. What about all year round? The people in front of you. What's stopping you? Because I think if we can admit something, identify something and confess something, we'll experience freedom, right? So, so if you have fear in your gut, it's in the darkness, what you need to let it do is breathe the air of Jesus. Breathe the, breathe the freedom of Jesus. So you need to confess it. It needs to come out. You need to throw it up and say, this is what I'm fearing. This is why I'm not doing something. I need to identify this and let it just touch the freedom air of Jesus. That's what happens when we confess something to our brothers. That's why we're, uh, like yesterday in missional community, we were confessing something to our brothers and sisters, and our brothers and sisters were praying for us, and Jesus was forgiving us in a house yesterday. It was amazing. That's all it takes. Just get that thing out in the air of Jesus. He heals it. He forgives us. We repent. He heals us. He, lo we love, okay, he loves us. That, that's how this goes. So I figured let's, let's identify these missionary stoppers. Let's confess them, and let's let them breathe the air of Jesus. Here, here's the first one, the first missionary stopper. The word missionary has put on a scary costume. The word missionary has put on a scary costume. Uh, now, for, well, first of all, like, we call our, our small groups missional communities, if you don't know. We call them missional communities because we believe that language dictates culture. So although we know the name is a bit confusing, uh, we want them to be Here's what our definition is. Family-sized communities, gospel-infused communities on mission together. Family-sized, gospel-infused com uh, communities uh, on mission together. That's, that's what we want them to be. So we figured let's name them this big, long name that nobody knows, and therefore they'll get what, exactly what they're supposed to be doing, right? But when I talk about it in other contexts with people who don't know our culture here, they're like, what do you want me to do? Huh. I got a job. This is what they think. I got a job. I can't. I can't move to the brush. I can't move to a remote village. Because they hear the word missionary or missional, and they think, i got to move to a village. I have to get a machete, and, and I'm on my way to work, and I'm chopping down things and selling my Gucci bags. Like, I can't, I can't do this, right? This is what we think. Because the word missionary has put on a We've really put this tremendously scary costume on it, and we think that's what being a missionary is. When being a missionary to Jesus is, get to Jesus, bring somebody with you. It could be from Newark, it could be from your building, it could be from your job, it doesn't really, it, doesn't, it definitely doesn't have to be the brush. Now God might send you to the brush. That's, that's amazing. But he might just be, and he probably is just sending you to the next door, right, to, to the next door. That's what he's sending you to. We put on this scary costume, and it's really stopped us from considering ourselves a, a local missionary to anyone and everyone around us. That's a short one. Uh, let, me, let me tell you the next one. This is a little bit longer. 
This is called elitism, right? The next missionary stopper is elitism. We have a, a major problem with elitism in the church, okay? And elitism has on two heads. The first head is elite position, and the second head is elite capability. So you think, in order to be a missionary, I need to have elite position or elite capability. Elite position, meaning I need to be a pastor with a degree, or a missionary with a degree, or I need to have gone to some sort of class, or, or, or I need to have position in the church where I'm some sort of elder, and I have my own parking spot or something, and that way, that, that way I can be a missionary to the people around me. I'm qualified. Or we think I need to have elite capability. I can pray super well. I can pray in KJV language, the King James Version. I can pray super long. I can preach to anybody, right? I can preach to, to anybody I see on the street. Every once in a while, I'll grab a microphone on the street and just go for it. I can lead a small group. We think that we need to have elite capability. Or, or that capability needs us to be like the homecoming queen or the homecoming king of the church, like, wow, those people are extroverts on steroids. Those people are elites. And this is wrong. And this is not what God has called us to. And this is not the mountain of evidence that we have. God has given us a mountain of evidence against this in the flow of court. Um, here's the mountain, okay? I got the big Bible out for dramatic effect. Here's the mountain of evidence that we do not need to be elite to be carriers of the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to put up a list of 40-some, uh, maybe late 30s people that we consider polarizing in the scriptures. And I want to talk about how many of them are elite. Okay? I've, and so you may think a couple of those other people are elite at something else. We can argue about that later. But here's four, 30 to 40 or so. I had a different list. And I, I, it was 41. Uh, I did it from memory this morning. But here, here's a list of these people and, and who we consider at least polarizing, who, who come to memory when we read the scripture. Um, I, I highlighted the elite in red. Noah was elite. And, and you may think, why? Well, well, because he built a giant ark. Okay, I consider that pretty darn elite, right? Everybody around him is looking at him like he's crazy, like he's taking something. And dude is just building an ark and gathering animals into this ark. Dude is elite. But dude has kind of a little bit of a drunken moment post-flood. Some scholars think he's depressed. Some scholars think he didn't know that the wine was fermented. <laughs> okay. All right. We all know dude built an ark by himself, and so dude needed a stiffy. He needed a stiff drink, and so he's drinking. Some scholars think some, some poor sexual decisions were made. Either way, Noah had some issues. Okay? How, how about Moses? Moses, elite leader, absolutely. But he really struggled to do what God told him to do pretty consistently. Abraham, elite faith, also struggled with lying and faith. Okay, dude was a bit of a liar. Esther really has the cleanest record. <laughs> She's got the cleanest record. She had elite beauty and elite faith. But I think probably somewhere along the line, if you dug, dug into Esther's history, there might be something else there that maybe she did a little bit hairy. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she's just, like, amazing. But everybody on this list had something going on. Solomon, elite wisdom, a billion wives. 
right? And starts build, his wives start building, you know, like tabernacles to their gods. And Solomon's like, it's okay. I just need to keep my thousands of wives happy, right? There's just a lot of stuff going on. You might like, what about David? Oh, David and all the Psalms. And he's an elite Psalm writer and he was an elite warrior. Well, dude committed adultery and murder in like a week. And then he didn't think it was his fault. Someone had to tell him a story. And he goes, oh, this was my fault. <laughs> dude was a mess. Right? Every single one of these people had serious, serious issues. Paul, oh he, was, oh, he was elite. Yeah, but he was elite for the wrong team where they were killing Christians for years. Uh, and then he's a terrible preacher. Like, terrible. He's preaching one day, and the dude falls out of a window and dies. And then he's going to go revive him. I mean, that's how you know you're back. Like, I'm just quitting. Someone dies on my watch in here. I'm like, I'm done. I'm going to go work for ESPN or something. I don't know. Do they have good benefits? I'm just, I'm quitting at that point. All these people had issues. And you can, you can I mean, I didn't put Rahab up there. Rahab's in Jesus' family. She's a prostitute. You can, you can start working through what went down here and realize that these people were elite at maybe something, but it kind of counterbalanced with all their mess. We made up elitism. Because we're obsessed in America with elitism, we've just taken that hat off of Americanism and we put it on our theology and the way we function inside the church. And the church now looks like the gym, right? It looks like an elitist territory. I haven't been to a gym in a long time. I was at the gym the other day, and I, I, I quickly remembered how the gym is an elitist territory, right? There's dudes so, sw so swole, they can't even turn, right? They're, they can't even move this way. Their torso just doesn't bend like that. Their chest is eating the tank top. The tank top is like, what have I done? It's like, rah, 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 rah. I mean, these guys, <laughs> these guys are giants. And they're taking up, all, they're taking up the whole gym. And I, here I am in my normal size t-shirt. I'm like, can I have that 20 pound weight? Like, is that, he's like, no. You know, I was like, like at any moment, I felt like an arm wrestling contest was just going to break out. Like, it was just going to break out. Pump, 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 and then we're just gonna arm wrestle. Like, it's crazy how elite this place feels. And I'm not hating because I was a super giant meathead in college. Like, I was the meathead of meathead. I was there five days a week, so I'm not hating. This is exactly who I was. I wish I was that big now. So I'm not hating, but I'm saying this is what it feels like. And you go up in the gym, especially if you haven't been there for a while, and you're like, can I play? Like, is this a sandbox that I can play in? Do I belong? And most people leave the gym because they feel like they don't belong. But here's the question. Do you belong? Yeah. You paid a membership. So the authority of the gym says if you paid the membership, you get to be there. The authority of all of this has said, I paid your membership through Jesus Christ. You are my son. You are my daughter. You belong. I know this feels like an elitist territory, this whole missionary thing, bringing someone else to Jesus, but you made that up in your mind because I say the authority of the gym, the authority of this world says, you're in. You belong. You can wear a normal-sized T-shirt. You can play in this sandbox, and I love you. Elitism is something that we have to kill in the church. 
Um, let me just tell you that all you have to be is a, f- a faithful version of who you are today, <laughs> wherever you're at. That's all God's asking of you. Just be the most faithful version of you, wherever you're at. Last one. This is called skepticism of the, nar- the meta-narrative. Um, I-, I know that so- sounds a bit like, whoa, what is that? Um, but I've been trying to say this for months, wherever I've been at, and this dude named John Tyson said it in six words. Don't you love when, someone, when that happens? Like, I've been trying to say this with, like, metaphors, and dude said it in six words. Um, and so he said this, and I thought, oh, that, that's, that's brilliant. The skepticism of the meta-narrative leads me to fear. You know what people are skeptical of? They're skeptical of you, right? This is what this means. They're skeptical of you, but not really you. They're skeptical of you because you have an idea of what you think the meta-narrative is. So does that make sense? You believe you know who created this whole big narrative. You believe in your gut, in your heart, in your mind that God created the world, that Jesus came, that Adam and Eve screwed it up, and then a bunch of people screwed it up afterwards, and more people screwed it up afterwards, but Jesus came to die for all of our sins. He resurrected for all of our sins. Now we get to spend eternity with him. He is the meta narrative, and we believe that we have the meta narrative, and so people are very skeptical of that. The fact that you would claim, I have it. Like, what do you mean you have it? The fact that you would try to bring them along in the journey, they're very skeptical of you. Very skeptical of you. Very, very skeptical of me. I tried for months to make sure nobody knew that I was a pastor in my building because I knew that they were going to assume things about me. And I wanted to at least work slowly into those assumptions. <laughs> right? Because the skepticism of the meta narrative, this big narrative, becomes assumption of those who have the meta-narrative, right? So people will automatically assume that you hate people who identify as homosexual. You hate them. Well, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> you vote this way. I don't, I didn't, why are you assuming that about me? Right, so the skepticism of the meta-narrative immediately becomes the assumption of meta-narrative, and that scares me to death. Does that, does that scare you too? When you're out there trying to bring somebody else to Jesus, does that scare you that people are judging you, that they're assuming things about you, that they've already put you in a box? Because it, it scares me. It brings fear to me. And I got a degree. Right? So it's like, that degree means nothing here on the missions field. Because this still scares me to death. Now that fear, should that fear pop our boldness bubble? Absolutely not. Should that fear that everybody is skeptical of you and your meta-narrative, should that, should that pop your boldness bubble? No. I mean, culture changes, but calling doesn't. We're still called to bring that fear out, to confess it in front of brothers and sisters, let it taste the air of Jesus, and let Jesus speak life into our fear and over our fear and kill our fear. That's what we're called to do. So if this is what is stopping you, confess that in a missional community. Confess that to to somebody else here. Confess that to a friend. Be like, yo, this scares me, and this is why I'm not being bold with my friend. Bring it out to the air. Why? 
Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of that could separate us from the love of Jesus. So why should a little bit of skepticism, a little bit of elitism, a little bit of assumption scare us off from bringing the love of Jesus to people? It's not okay. We need to speak over this fear. We need to get this fear into the air and say this is not okay. We are all missionaries. You're a missionary. You're a missionary. Like Oprah. You get to be a missionary. You get to, we all get to be missionaries. This is all our territory. And if people turn us down because of Jesus, Jesus says that's so good. I know it doesn't feel good, but I love you so much for your boldness, for your love, for your care, for your faithfulness. Jesus is so proud of you, although you lost that friend. Let's end with this, our, our original scripture, the last scripture today, verse 56. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in marketplaces and implored him that uh, they might even touch the fringe of his garment. The fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Here's my call to you today. In this whole missionary journey, and this whole thing that I'm talking about today, you don't have to get everything right. You just have to get everything faithful. Come on up, worship team. You don't have to get everything right. You just have to get everything faithful. I don't know if you noticed this, but these folks got it wrong. They're scrambling to touch the fringe of his garment. Let me tell you what the fringe of his garment is. It's called a tzitzit. Okay, it sounds like a cuss word, but it's not. Can you all say tzitzit on the count of three? One, two, three. Tzitzit. But nobody said that, okay? My goodness. I'm up here. I'm sick. I'm pouring my heart out. One, two, three, tzitzit. Thank you. A tzitzit is the tassels, and it's mostly made of a blue cord, and it represents something on a Jewish rabbi's cloak. What it represents is a reminder of the commandments of God. And it's also the thing that the girl touched, the woman touched, when she had constant menstruation flow a couple chapters ago. So she's healed when she touches his tzitzit, Right, when she touches that part of his garment. And so they may be trying to touch this part of his garment because one, they think that's the place you got to, maybe they heard of this story, maybe that story didn't travel far enough. Either way, they think uh, this is where she touched or they think religion. This is the reminder, this is the holy place of Jesus. This part of his garment. Is that the holy place of Jesus? Is that where the power of Jesus lies? Come on, G the power of Jesus lies in Jesus. They could have touched Jesus' armpits. Didn't matter. The power was not in this part of his garment. The power was in Jesus. He's been healing people all over the region for, for months and days. The power is not there. So these people, although they're doing a ton right, are getting this totally wrong. Does Jesus care? No. Jesus don't care. He doesn't care if you get it right. He cares if you get it faithful. He cares if you take this step to get to him and bring somebody else with you. So yeah, you're probably not qualified. You don't know the books of the Bible in order. Maybe you don't know what John 3.16 even says. Jesus just wants you to get faithful. He doesn't want you to get right. He just wants you to show up and try to bring somebody with you. Who is it? 
Who are the three people right now Jesus is putting on your heart? Close your eyes with me. Who are the three people that Jesus is putting on your heart right now? Who is it? Who do you need to get to Jesus? I remember in college, last super quick story, I remember in college, I had just given my life to Jesus. I barely loved Jesus at this point, though. And these guys, these somewhat nerdy guys, knocked on my door once a week. And they said, do you want to have a Bible study with me and with us? And I said no for the first six times. Finally, because they were annoying, I went to have a Bible study with me, with them. Excuse me. And they discipled me. And they walked me into who Jesus really was. And all they did was go down the hall. They were seniors. Do you remember when you were a senior in college or a senior in high school, what you thought of freshmen? They didn't even deserve to eat at your table. These guys were seniors knocking on my door once a week. Hey, hey bud, you want to come? Whose door do you need to knock on? What hallway do you need to walk down? Who are you praying for? Who are you reaching out to? Because you are a missionary. All you got to do is get to Jesus. Bring somebody with you. Let's pray. Stand up with me. Stand up with me. We're going to worship here. Yes, Jesus, who is it? Who do, who do we need to bring with us? How do we get to you? How do we bring people with us? Would you start to work on their heart right now? God, we pray that this place doubles, not because we want numbers, but because people are reaching out to people. We pray that this place doubles, triples, multiplies, and we plant church after church after church, not because of the preaching or not because of the worship or not because of the programming, but because people want to get to you and they want to bring somebody with you. We believe that's the right way to grow. We believe that's a movement of Jesus. That's what we want to happen. That's what we're praying for. Who is it, Jesus? You bring them up. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.